This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today, we're continuing a a message series from Mark chapter 5 that we've called Unchained. And so over the past several weeks and for the next few, we're discovering uh, how Jesus comes to bring freedom to everyone, everywhere. He's not holding back anything from us, and so we shouldn't hold anything back from him. Mark chapter 5 is the story of an unlikely man who lives in an unlikely place having an unexpected encounter with Jesus, one that changes his life forever. And today we'll be in uh, the the little portion we'll focus on is Mark chapter 5 verses 14 through 17, where Jesus comes, he sets this man free, people from the town come to see what has happened, and instead of celebrating, they begin to focus on kicking Jesus out. Uh, and so just kind of, I, I know we are all very intelligent and uh, on the same page this morning, but just in case somebody's coffee hasn't kicked in yet, sometimes a sermon title is a reminder of things to do. This is not one of those, right? There is never a, so the, the, the takeaway from today is not, I need to kick Jesus out of some stuff. That's not it. Don't go there. Um, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're teaching from a negative this morning, okay? Don't do what they did. But in case it's your first time with us, uh, we're going to read through Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, so we all have the full story together. You can look there with me in your Bible, or you can follow along with me on the screens. Mark says, they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, as I said, we're going to focus this morning on verses 14 through 17, where it gives us a report of the men tending the pigs or people tending the pigs, run back in town, tell the people what happened. They run out, see Jesus. They get scared and they ask him to leave. 
And it points us to this, this uh, idea that maybe is a little hard for us to understand, especially for people of faith, that miracles can be divisive. Right? And so let's just, before we get to that, let's place ourselves in the positions of the people who live in the villages and the countryside in this area. So it says, after this occurs, the men tending the pigs run into the village and the surrounding countryside to tell people everything that has happened. Now, those villages and, and the, the rural area around them would have been similar to our makeup this morning if it would have been a multi-generational audience that's receiving this message. The crazy man at the tombs is whole. Some guy showed up in a boat, cast out the evil spirit. The pigs are dead and we don't know what's going on. So imagine you're there, right? And, and maybe put yourself in the demographic of the person receiving that message. So maybe you're one of the elders in the community. And you have known the man in the tombs for as long as he's been alive. Maybe you were friends with his parents, maybe in a, a small town like that. He's the third cousin of a second sister of a, you know, how everyone's just kind of related in some way, but you've always known him. You remember when he was born, you remember the celebration his family had of they were welcoming a son into their home, the excitement of his father, the excitement of his mother. And you remember all of these moments. And then you also remember his descent into madness. You remember the pain that it caused to his parents. Maybe you're a little judgy and you remember some of the poor choices they make that you're pretty sure contributed to it, right? Because they let him watch the wrong things on TV when he was little. And if they, and you know, but maybe you're not judging. You're just filled with sympathy and you just look at it and it's just a case of pity and sadness. Maybe you're a peer of the man at the tombs. And you grew up with him. You played in the neighborhood together when you were little kids. You attended the same school. You ran in the same crowd. But somewhere along the way, your life stayed on track and his went completely off the rails. He got involved in things that your parents had always told you not to get involved in. He had, we don't know exactly how or why, but you know, there was a point where you kept going here and he went there. And maybe you were friends and you watched as his family tried to control him. Maybe you helped them wrap the chains around his hands or his feet at some point. Maybe you tried to intervene, but there came the point where you and everyone else had to recognize nothing can be done. We just have to drive him out of town. And you're familiar with his shrieks and his screams. And you tell your own kids the story of, hey, don't go out there. Stay away from him. Or, or maybe, maybe you're like our teenagers in the room this morning. You're a teenager who grew up in this community. And for as long as you've been alive, there's been a crazy man at the tombs. He's the warning story your parents tell you. right? He's the exam Whenever you do anything they don't like, they tell you to stop it or you're going to wind up like him. right? You know what? He used to disrespect his teachers. You know what? He used to roll his eyes at his mama. You know what? He used to do this. He used to do that. Look at him now. He used to complain about the clothes his mom made for him. He used to complain about the food his dad provided for him. He picked his nose. He didn't pay attention. He, you know, whatever it was that you want him to quit, you just use this guy. But as a teenager, you know, you're, you're getting a little brave now. So you've spent some time exploring it on your own. And maybe you and your buddies, you sneak out to the edge of town at times when your parents all think you're at someone else's house. Right? And you sneak out and you, you watch him from a distance. And you, you snicker and you make fun of him in only the way that teenagers can to build up their own bravado. But the moment he makes any kind of eye contact with you, you fall silent and you run home because you're really secretly terrified of him. Everybody in the community has some form of interaction and impression with this tormented man at the tomb. Which is what makes their response so interesting. 
So imagine you're there and you're, you're going about your day, you're in school, you're working, you're in the house, whatever you are, and you hear a commotion outside and you look out and it's the, I, I don't know if we call them pig herders, pig shepherds, pig farmers, I don't know what you call them in that setting, but they've come back into town and they're saying, hey, you got to come out. The, the crazy man is normal. The pigs are dead and there's a guy we don't know. And you, I mean, small town, countryside, this is the wildest thing that's happened in a while, right? So what happens? Everybody goes out. And when they show up, the contrast between who this man used to be and who he is now could not be more remarkable, right? Think, think of the wildest people you know. I mean, just, you know, probably like a three-year-old boy, just, I mean, completely everywhere, all the time, out of control, full of energy, full of life. And if you ever walk in, you see a three-year-old boy who's normally wild, sitting quietly, you're terrified of what he might have just done, right? Of like, what did you, you just burned down part of the house, didn't you? I just don't see the smoke. You just don't know. But they come out, this man who, he shrieked, he's cut himself, chains cannot bind him. The, the evil inside of him has prevented him from being still and at peace. And their first observation of him is he's sitting next to this man they don't know, dressed and in his right mind. He's not shrieking. He's holding a conversation. He's not half naked. He's fully clothed. He doesn't have that wild, deranged look in his eye anymore. He's at peace and at rest. He's smiling. He's laughing. He seems to have adopted the cultural norms of interaction that have been so absent from his life. And if you're his elder or you're his peer or you're a younger person in that community, you come out and you have this observation that's so different from everything you've ever seen. And then you notice there's a group of maybe 12 or 15 men that are there. But there's one man that everybody's giving all their attention to. And every time he speaks, everyone else gets quiet. And every time you just, even from a distance, you can sense there's something different about that one man. And you've heard enough of the story to know there was one man among them who caused all of this to happen. And as you come out as an elder or a peer or a younger person, and you lay your eyes on Jesus for the very first time in your life, and there's this living miracle in front of you, your first reaction is not celebration, thankfulness, or gratitude. It says their first reaction was fear. They were terrified of what Jesus had done. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's interesting to us because for most of us as people of faith, miracles are welcome symbols of God's supernatural intervention in our life. Right? We, we love them. We long for them. We pray for them. I mean, just some of us, if, if we said, hey, raise your hand if you're trusting God for a miracle, almost every hand in the room, we've got at least one area of life where we need, want, and would long for a miracle. And we're tempted to think, if God would give me that miracle, then everyone I know when I tell them the story would become a follower of Jesus. Right? The, the New Testament is clear to us that miracles, signs, and wonders will accompany the preaching of the gospel. And they do. We see it in our community. We see it through our Kingdom Builders partners. We've seen it in our life of when the gospel is proclaimed, God confirms it, that the sick are healed, the lame are raised, the blind see, the deaf hear. We experience supernatural miracles of deliverance, supernatural miracles of provision. God does it again and again and again. And we think if he would just do it more, more people would come to follow him. 
Maybe we've probably, I know I've prayed prayers at times, like, Lord, if you'll just heal my friend, then I think they'll follow you. Lord, if you'll just provide for me in this supernatural way, I'll tell everyone the story of what you've done. And I just know they'll commit to you. And yet what we see again and again and again in the scriptures is when Jesus shows up and Jesus performs miracles, some embrace him and others reject him. Jesus himself made it clear that this would happen. He told us in John chapter three, verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. There are some who follow him and there are others who begin to plot to kill him. In John chapter five, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and instead of rejoicing, they're mad because they think that he broke the law. In John chapter nine, he opens the eyes of a blind man who surrenders his life to Jesus while the rest of the religious community, including it appears even the man's own parents, will not surrender to Jesus as Messiah. In Matthew chapter 12, in another instance of Jesus driving out evil spirits, instead of rejoicing, he's met with, well, he's clearly a servant of Satan, and that's where he gets his power from. You see, again and again and again, miracles create division. And it forces us to ask, why? Because as people of faith, it can be hard. If I, don't, I don't, I mean, personally, it's hard for me to understand. If there was a blind person and now they can see how anyone would say, I'm mad at God because of that. It seems only as a, well, clearly something has happened, but, but here's why. In this story and in our stories, miracles cause division because miracles are a sign that Jesus has disrupted the status quo. Jesus comes, he says, to bring light to darkness. He comes to bring life to death. He comes to invade systems that have been thoroughly infected by sin and to show us that a new way is possible. But before Jesus shows up, we've gotten pretty good at living in these systems. We've grown accustomed to the darkness. We have figured out not just how to survive, but often how to thrive in it. And so now when Jesus comes and he begins to speak words of life, he begins to set people free, he begins to do works of healing, he provides miraculous provision, suddenly our world is turned upside down and not everyone likes their world to be turned upside down. Especially when it comes from someone that they don't know, they don't understand, and they're afraid has a greater power than anything they've ever seen before. So it's, again, it's, it's kind of difficult a couple weeks ago, I, th- I think there's a, a couple questions that come up in Mark chapter 5 pretty frequently. So two weeks ago, we addressed one of them. What about the pigs? Right? Everybody wants to know. Why do the pigs die? Why do the pigs die? And we don't have time to get into that. You can you know, podcast from two weeks ago. We'll, we'll try to answer that for you. The, the second question that comes up a lot from Mark chapter 5 is, what happens to those evil spirits after the pigs die? Right? I, I got that from several people over the past couple weeks. Like, yeah, but do they, do they die in the lake? Did Jesus, after the pigs go, does he send them to hell? Uh, are they free to just roam the earth? Did Jesus send them after the people who tried to kick him out? Like, well, what exactly happened there? And it's, it, it requires us to, to do a little bit of work and understanding. So um, as followers of Jesus, we believe in two advents, two arrivals of Jesus. The first advent is what we celebrate at Christmas, the arrival of Jesus as a baby, the arrival of God in flesh. 
suffered, died, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to us. This is where we live, the land after the first arrival. And Jesus' first arrival was all about him declaring his power over evil. Right? So he comes in Mark chapter 5 to demonstrate to this man, to this community, to the disciples, to everyone who will read this story always and forever, that Jesus has all the power he needs to drive out any evil that's attacking you at any point in time. And so that's, that's what he does. Now at the second coming of Jesus... He will return and he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And he will perfectly and finally banish the enemy and all of his forces to hell forever. They will be locked up. They will no longer be allowed to torment, no longer allowed to tempt God's people. But we live in this space in between. And in the space in between, we can know personal victory over every evil that attacks while we still long for Jesus's return and his perfect and final victory. The land in between is where Mark chapter 5 occurs as well. And so what is most likely from what the scriptures teach us is that when Jesus allows the demons to go into the pigs and the pigs rush off into the lake and are drowned, the demons cannot inhabit the dead pigs anymore. And so they are now left looking for a new host within this region. And suddenly the people's fear begins to make a little more sense. There's a a guy, when I was studying through this, he says it so much better than I can. So I'm just going to read it to you, and and we'll let him speak. Dr. Ronald Kernighan, he says, There is a certain security in knowing where evil is. To tie evil to a name or location creates the hope that it can be avoided. Right? This is Mark chapter 5. Just don't go to the tombs, and you stay away from the evil. Creates a hope that it can be avoided. Before Jesus cast out the demonic host, the local people had a kind of awful security. They knew where evil was, and despite the screams in the night, they knew how to avoid it. Avoid the man, and you avoid the evil. Because of what Jesus did, though, this system no longer worked. Jesus' presence constituted a threat to the structure of their community. And I love that line, because of what Jesus did, the system no longer worked. See, the people were afraid because they believed in setting one man free, Jesus had put them all at risk. And they didn't want him to mess up their lives any more than he already had. They show up on the lake shore and they see 2,000 dead pigs. They see a man restored to his right mind and they're met with the fear that the evil we thought we had contained has now been set free. It's true because Jesus comes to set the captives free. He comes to disrupt a broken world. And we might get accustomed to it. We might know how to work it. We might even succeed in it. But the world is still broken and Jesus still disrupts it. And when he disrupts it, we are disoriented. The the people of the area, they're so thrown off by what Jesus does that they never even ask why he did it. Instead, they ask him to leave which is really kind of a challenging moment for us to consider. Well, what am I going to do when Jesus disrupts my status quo? When Jesus shows up in my life, am I going to stop long enough to say, why did you do that? And what do you want to do now? Or like the people in this story, is my focus going to be 100% on how quickly can I rebuild everything I've lost and get Jesus out of here before he messes it up again? 
See, they asked Jesus to leave because they were afraid. Now that evil is let loose, we've just got to get him out of here. Hopefully, it'll find one person and we can send them back to the tombs. If they had just stopped and said, Jesus, why? Why did you do this? He would have told them. He would have told them because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He would have told them because I've been sent to set the captives free. He would have told them because what I did for this man, I want to do for every single one of you. He would have told them, look, you're afraid of these demons because now you think they're loose in your area and they might come for every one of you. But what I'm telling you is if you will put your faith in me, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Lord. And if you follow me, the enemy will attack, but he will live in a permanent state of retreat and defeat in your life. They had an opportunity to embrace the path of life and victory, but their fear kept them captive. And they said, Jesus, can you leave? Can you just get out of here? And we face the same challenge in our life. There are going to be times where God interrupts your life, where he disrupts the way you work, the way you interact with people, the way you think about life, the way you treat others. And in that space, in the difficulty and the discomfort that comes with it, you face the same choice as the crowd in Mark 5. You can either ask Jesus, why are you here and why are you doing this? Or you can say, can you leave? Can you leave? They're they're really upset because Jesus, his arrival doesn't just disrupt their life, but it it reveals their priorities. As Mark continues to tell us the story, he shows us it's not just the fear of evil that causes the people to ask Jesus to leave. He says in verse 16, those who had seen it told the people about what had happened to the demon-possessed man. So that's the fear of evil part. And told about the pigs as well. Then the people begin to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So it's not just the fear of evil. There's a second thing that causes them to ask Jesus to leave. It's the pigs as well. Now, the man's freedom should have caused celebration, but it doesn't. And it's not just because they're afraid. It's also because there's been an extreme economic cost to the freedom of this man. I don't know. If I, I'm pretty confident to say we probably don't have any pig farmers in the room. Um, Some of you might have grown up on a pig farm. You might have hunted around pig farms. Uh, You know, you've got some affiliation with it, or maybe you just like bacon. And you're like, I feel like a pig farmer, you know, (laughs) eat a couple pounds a week. So, um, you know, I I don't know, but, but probably not most of us, but, but here's the thing, put yourself. So there's some debate among, among uh, New Testament scholars of those 2000 pigs. Did they represent, um, you know, the kind of the, the portfolio of one particularly wealthy person? Or, and and more likely, what more of them agree on is those 2,000 pigs, it was kind of like a pig co-op, right? Like, Like everybody from the surrounding villages and towns probably owned several of those. And so when when Jesus allows them to rush off the bank and into the water, the local pork mutual fund has just crashed. Like there is, there's nothing left. And so before we judge the villagers too harshly, again, let's put ourselves in their shoes. That friend or family member that you're desperately praying to come and know Jesus, if it came at the expense of your life savings, how would you respond? I mean, I like, and and I'm not saying that as like this, uh, you know, I just, I'd be so happy and I'd ask Jesus to rob me again. I I mean, I like, it's, that's a serious thing. Like, hey, that, that prodigal son or daughter, what if you had to be homeless for them to come into the kingdom? Okay, I I can sympathize with them a little bit more now. But we we have to to kind of put ourselves there because really what they're saying is, Jesus, you've cost us too much. 
No, we just need you to get out of here. We need you to leave. We need you to move on before you make things worse. Now again, if they had just stopped and asked, why? Jesus, why did you do this? And he would have told them, because I came to set the captives free. Because I came to set you free as well. And then they could have had a follow-up conversation of, Jesus, we appreciate that. We would enjoy this freedom. We do have a follow-up question. What about the pigs? That was our income, Lord. That's how we provided for our children. It's how we fed our families. What are we going to do now? Right? And, and, and so here is where we need to really stop and pay attention. Because when Jesus shows up with our misplaced priorities, sometimes we are hesitant to surrender those to him because we think he's going to take them away without giving us anything in return. If Jesus comes and says, hey, you're putting, your, your priorities are all out of whack at work. You're pursuing unethical business practices. You're engaged in models of business that are robbing friends and family and people you know and love. You need to get out of that. A believer has no business in that. And your thought is, I can't do that because I've got to pay the mortgage. But when Jesus interrupts, just say, okay, Jesus, what are you doing here? What are you teaching me? And then I'm going to trust you that if you take this away, there's something new coming. And if they had said, Lord, what about the pigs? Maybe one of the disciples would have stepped in and said, hey, let me tell you a story about five loaves and two fish. Let me tell you about this man who's standing in front of you. He can do more than you can ask or think or imagine. We don't know that Jesus didn't have plans to provide some other supernatural miracle for them, some other form of provision, so that this place could now be a launching point for the kingdom into the Gentile world, but we'll never know because they said, get out of here. It's too much. And so then we look at our lives and we think, well, how am I tempted? Where is Jesus asking? What's he speaking? And, and here's my encouragement to you today. If Jesus asks you to give something up, it's so he can put something else in your hands. Right? So, so if you're in a spot, you're a single adult this morning, and, and more than anything, you're thinking, I want to be married. I want to I have this deep relationship. But you know you are pursuing relationships in ways that are odds with your identity as a son or a daughter of God. And you feel the Lord this morning disrupting that status quo and saying, we're not going to do that anymore. You're going to live according to my path. You're going to live by my principles. You're going to live by my spirit. But inside you have this fear of, but if I give this up, I'll never get what I want. My encouragement to you is you will get something better. You'll get what God has for you. Right? If, it's, if it's a business thing and you're thinking, I, I, I mean, I, I hear you and I get you and, and I understand why some people should give those up. But if I give it up, I can't make money. This is what the whole field is built around. This is what everybody does. And if I adopt some of these other things that the scriptures suggest, I'm, I'm going to be put out of business. Again, if Jesus interrupts, it's not just to mess up your life. It's to redirect your path and to put you on a path of life, on a path of wholeness. And so he'll either help you figure out how to do it the right way, or he'll redirect you into an entirely new area. But when he reveals your misplaced priorities, it's not just to condemn you or convict you, it's to change you, to show you a completely different path and a completely different way. And the enemy knows he cannot compete with the new life Jesus offers to us. And he can't compete with the joy that Jesus is going to give you. He can't compete with the peace, with the fulfillment, with just the, the everyday knowing who you are and where you belong. The enemy can't compete with any of that. 
And so his trick then is to divert your attention to lesser things. To take the worship that's reserved for God alone and to place it on your economics, on your politics, on your relationships, on your status in your particular culture or community. And to say, this is where your worth is found. This is where your significance resides. This is the only thing other people care about you and to get you to put all of your time and all of your attention there. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I just, I love that picture because I think when Jesus reveals our misplaced priorities, that's exactly what he's doing. He's showing up and saying, hey, stop playing in the mud and let me show you something greater. Let me show you something better. Hey, stop chasing the things that you can control and you can manipulate and start living a life surrendered to my spirit where I lead and guide every moment of every day. It's an encouragement that we never fear giving up what we have for what Jesus has. And it's a reminder to us that anytime he shows up and takes something out of our hands, it might be painful and there may even be a sense of loss with it, but he always has something better. His promise is that he has come to give us life and life to the full. And if we had time, we could go around the room today. And for people who followed Jesus for more than a couple months, you could tell your own stories of there were seasons in life where I thought everything I had was in this hand and God called me to lay it all down. And then he filled this with something so much greater than I ever could have imagined. And the path of obedience is always the path of blessing. It's the path where you experience the provision of God. It's the path where you experience the peace of God. It's the path where you walk with the Spirit. And on that day, on the shore of that lake, there was a whole region being invited into this path. And everybody but one man rejected Jesus. Only the man who had been set free wanted to stay with Jesus, wanted to follow this new way of life. Everybody else said, we just got to get you out of here. You've just got to move on before you make things even worse. And so, so I want to leave you with one final thought this morning. I don't know exactly where God is speaking to you about priorities that may be misplaced. I don't know if there are things that he's saying, hey, either you need to give that up or you need to loosen your grip on that. Maybe it's a gift he gave you that you have turned into a God. Maybe it's a, a, a kind of insecurity that you're trying to fill in some inappropriate ways. Whatever it is, as God is speaking to you today and saying, hey, I'm interrupting to redirect you. In that space, in that space, don't settle for pigs when Jesus offers you a kingdom. Because right? that's, that's ultimately what these people did. Jesus, leave. We have a herd to rebuild. Jesus, leave. We have a life to get back to. And we'll get into it in a couple weeks because it's really great. Jesus leaves, but he leaves the man behind as a permanent testimony. And it says the man starts traveling all over the region telling the story of what God has done. And then when they hear it from him, the people are amazed. So Jesus doesn't leave them absent, but they, they miss out on that blessing of participating in the kingdom with him. And my hope for you is in all the blessings that God has given you and all the ways that he has provided for you, 
that you will continually surrender everything to him. So if you'll stand with me, bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray just a couple prayers for us and kind of uh, lead us in a, a time of response here. So Jesus, we come to you this morning asking you to interrupt our life. Jesus, we see our tendency to worship lesser things, to chase after your gifts instead of you as the giver. God, you see how easily we fall for the lies of the enemy, that our worth and significance is found in our success or in our relationships and the way we're viewed by others, that it's found in our physical appearance or our educational achievements. And so Jesus, we take everything and we surrender it to you this morning. We invite your spirit to come and interrupt and your spirit to come and redirect. And Jesus, we pray that there is nothing in our life that we would value more than you. That there is nothing in our life that would receive our worship or our affection. Lord, we want to turn all of our attention, all of our devotion back to you as our savior and our king. And Jesus, we pray in these moments as we sing songs to lift our eyes up. Lord, that you will help us see you are greater than even the miracles we're desiring in our lives this morning. God, you're greater than the fulfillment of even the promises and the dreams that we've been holding on to and longing for. Jesus, our experience of you is the greatest gift. You are our greatest reward. And so today we come to take our identity as your sons and your daughters. And we hold all of our lives in open hands before you. Saying, have your way, Lord. Redirect, interrupt, redistribute, realign. In every space and every way, God, you can have it all. All we want is you. All we want is your power and your glory at work in our lives. All we want is to know the security of being your sons and your daughters, the peace, the hope, the joy, the fulfillment that is found in that identity. Jesus, we come today and we invite your Holy Spirit to lift our eyes up off of our successes and off of our failures, off of our problems and our promises, and to see you once again for who you are. You're the God who saves and delivers and heals, the God who drives out everything that attacks and holds us captive. And today, Lord, we choose to walk in that freedom and in that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.